0: Matthew chapter 15, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a large section today. And this section um, is, and the reason I'm taking large sections of, of the book of Matthew, uh, I could easily preach four sermons out of this, this passage, but I'm only going to preach one. And because I want us to see how Matthew makes connections and how these connections and this flow is very much an important part of what God is saying in this, in this book. And then we'll apply it to ourselves. So we're going to look at Matthew 15, 1 through 28. And I'm going to read the sections that we're going to look at um, during the preaching so that uh, we'll, it'll be fresh in our minds. So let's pray together and ask for grace. <clears throat> Father, it is so wonderful to, to know that you have given us your word and that you have made all kinds of powerful and even dramatic efforts to communicate to us to reveal Yourself to us, to help us in this fallen and dark planet to hear light and to experience Your grace and Your love. You had communicated to us through the most powerful means was Your Son. But then You, by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the inspiration, You have given us an infallible text that reveals your son to us, helps us to, as it were, live back then and see him and watch him and hear him and see what you incarnate looks like. So bless and be with us now. Help us to spend this half hour with Jesus and to learn from him and speak to us, we pray, and help us and even challenge us, we ask. We pray this all in his precious, precious name. Amen. The coming of Jesus Christ as the Messiah and as the Savior, it, it actually begins a major transition in the history of redemption. Redemption has a history, redemption has a flow, and it starts with creation and and then the call of Abraham, and God working with one unique nation, and then it comes with the coming of Messiah, and then this explosion into worldwide redemption as God is at work, and that's called the history of redemption, and the history of redemption has certain time periods in it, and then transitions to different time periods, and we're going to see that, and you see that happening in the life of Jesus. In, we've already looked at John the Baptist as being a major transition figure. He was the last Old Testament prophet, and yet, and he also introduces and foreshadows, as it were, the coming of the kingdom. But I think you could really have to say that Jesus is the most important and major transition figure it's a transition from the old covenant to the new covenant with his coming it's a transition from the focus of God with the nation of Israel to the focus now being on the entire world it's the transition that comes with a new kingdom and new expectations and we've seen that in the parables in the parables Jesus was helping us to understand that transition in the book of Matthew which uh, many scholars believe and I think they're right has a focus to a Jewish audience, Matthew is is very sensitive in helping us to see these transitions so that he can speak to the Jewish people of these transitions and what is taking place. And I hope that you will see that that's important in understanding these two very kind of diverse sections that we're going to look at this morning. And the first section is verses 1-20. through And, um, I'm a big Ray Charles fan, and Ray Charles, uh, they did an, he did an album, and it was called Genius Loves Company. And I think it's one of the greatest albums he ever made. But it's, uh, Ray Charles took all these other great singers, and he would sing duets with them. And the second great uh, singer, that uh, another one that he did, uh, he did a song entitled, Here We Go Again, Here We Go Again. She's back in town again. She'll break my heart again one more time. It's a great song. But anyway, I felt like that as soon as I read chapter 15, verse 1. Here we go again. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came in, came to see Jesus, Say, now let's just pause here. These are the bigwigs. These are the heavy hitters. These guys have come from Jerusalem. They've taken a journey to seek out Jesus, to probably to challenge him, to test him, to silence him, to humiliate him, to oppose this kingdom, all right? And you can see that verse 2. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded saying, honor your father and mother, and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Then he called his, the multitude to himself and said to them, Hear and understand. Two imperatives Hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And that word offended is the Greek word skandalizo, and so they were scandalized. They were actually angry by what he said. But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Now, see, he said to them earlier, Hear and understand. He's saying, You're still not getting it. Verse 17 Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. And so you see, Jesus is facing and confronting The the enemies, the the Pharisees and the scribes, and they represent a a twisted form of Old Testament religion, and he sees that right away. And now notice they come in and say, why do your disciples transgress? And the word here, transgress, actually is a very powerful word that means to willfully defy. Why do your disciples willfully defy, defy our rules? And this one has to do with washing of hands before you eat. Now, this is not what your mother told you to do. This is not that that was for health reasons. Now, you know, you came walking in from the sandbox and you had sand over your hands. and go, go wash your hands before you eat. And then you had to wash your hands real good. And if you didn't do a good enough job, that is not this. That is not this. What this is, is this is a ceremonial washing of uncleanness off of you from any contact, especially that you may have had with Gentiles. So if you were out there doing business and you had uh, some of the Roman soldiers near you or Gentiles near you and you had to hand them money or they hand you money or they, you touch them or they touched them, before you came in and eat, there would be a bowl there and you would dip your fingers in that bowl or you would walk, pour it on your hands or whatever to get the sin of those pagans off of you so that you would eat your food with clean hands. And that was one of the things that the Pharisees uh, had made up as a tradition. And Jesus told his disciples, and I can imagine because every good little Jewish boy was taught this, Jesus told his disciples one day or actually modeled before them that he wasn't doing that anymore. He wasn't treating the world like that anymore. He wasn't doing this pagan filth from those people, wash it off, now I'm clean, I'm right before God. He wasn't doing that anymore, and so his disciples probably followed him in that. And then they say to him, then he says to them, notice, why do you, verse 3, willfully defile the commandment of God, willfully disobey a commandment of God? And of course, he gives them the example. The Bible says to love your parents to take care of them, to honor them, to provide for them. And you say, oh, you can say to your parents, no, this money that would be to buy you food to take care of you, it is a gift to God. I'm giving it to God because I am so holy. Here, I'm giving it to God. Oh, by the way, Mr. Pharisee and Mr. Scribe here, you guys take this. I'm giving it to you. And therefore, you defy your parents. You defy God. You disobey his command because of these traditions, human traditions that have been made. And so you see, this is a huge controversy that is going on here. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second because this is very important. Um, we're, we're, I'm, we're planning a, a series of sermons, uh, hopefully within this year or next year, entitled Here I Stand because we want, especially the younger generation here, to understand that there are some things that you need to believe and never compromise over. Never! And this is one of them. This is the principle The biblical principle that the Word of God alone has authority and that man-made traditions must be in subjection to the Word of God or must be rejected if they defy or they contradict the Word of God. Now, historically, this is a biblical principle. Jesus is giving it to us here in Matthew 15. Historically, this is sometimes called a Protestant principle, but this was way before the Protestant Reformation, where people recognized that God's Word is superior and supreme over human tradition. And this is, it's called a Protestant principle because this is the problem, this is the major disagreement that we have with the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Those churches have have two levels of authority. The Word of God, the Bible, they claim, and human tradition, their traditions, their religious traditions. And as those two, they believe, function side by side, we look at them and say, no, 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 no. Your human traditions contradict the Word of God. And if they contradict the Word of God, then we're done with your human traditions. We're done with them. The Word of God speaks of salvation by grace, through faith, not of works, through Christ alone. And the Roman Catholic Church and the, and the Eastern Orthodox Church and these type of churches, they have this mixture of works and grace. And then you need candles and you need holy water and you need meatless Fridays and you need last rites and you need icons and you need priests and you need rosary beads and you need Mary and you need the saints. You need all of those things as well. And the Protestant principle says we defy that. We defy that. Salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, and it is not of works. Your human religious traditions contradict the word of God, and therefore we cannot follow you in this. And dear friends, do not give this up. Do not give this up. I try to be a nice guy. I try to be a loving guy. I try to be a get-along-with-people guy. But if you begin to push against the gospel, This is when I'm going to be as stubborn as a mule and not go anywhere. And, dear friends, that's what we need to be. That's what we need to be. We need to hold this firm. Don't give this up. And that's what Jesus is teaching right here. You're taking the traditions of men and you're contradicting the word of God. And that's the biblical principle. So then he teaches about food. He gathers the crowd together says, here, everybody, come here. I need to talk to you about something. And here, notice is a major transition going on, a major transition. Because in the Old Testament, there were dietary food laws. And those dietary food laws were set in place during that period of redemptive history to keep Israel separate from other people. Try living with somebody who has a very different diet than you do. Try living with them. Try inviting them over. It's difficult. There's challenges associated with that. God gave these, the Jewish people very specific dietary food laws. Part of it was to keep them separate from other people. Part of it was to teach them some very important things about being a separate, set-apart people for God. And now Jesus, at this point, Jesus is actually eliminating those. He's act, now think of, think of the, how these words are coming to people who have been taught the whole life. Oh, don't eat pork. Oh, don't eat this. Don't eat that. You can't even order a cheeseburger in Israel today. Because that's dairy on top of pork. You can't do it. You can't do it. First thing I did when I got back from Israel, I ordered a cheeseburger. I just was missing them so bad. And uh, and and notice here. Look at verse eleven. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of a mouth this defiles him. That would have been radically upsetting for everybody. What are you talking about? You're turning our life upside down. In fact, in the in in Ma- Mark in Mark's account of this, Mark's uh, it quotes this. In Mark 7, 19, because it does not go into his heart, but goes into his stomach and is eliminated. Thereby, he declared all foods clean. So this is a major transition, isn't it? You can eat anything now. He declares all foods clean. And what Jesus is doing is he's sending the focus now into heart religion. The focus now is going from external religion to heart religion. And this is one of the major transitions that he is taking. And so he now is focusing on, let's not focus anymore on what we're putting in our mouth and whether our fingers have been cleaned from pagan sin in order to get in out. mouth. Ah, now I've, I've, I've got my fingers clean from all my pagan interaction and, I've, and I put this stuff in my mouth and now I've eaten only the food that, that, that God has prescribed me. I am a righteous and holy man. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's what comes out of your mouth. The filth that comes out of your mouth the lies that come out of your mouth. It's the things that you say. It's the things that you do. It's the things that comes out of the heart that comes out of the mouth. Those are what makes you an unholy man. So you can do all of this stuff right and still be an unholy man, still be an unclean man. And so he's focusing this onto the heart. And that's the important thing. Now, we're going to go to the next section. Before you do that, I want to I want to pause and tell you, this is interesting. This is kind of an interesting parallel. For those of you who know uh, Acts 10, where Peter is sort of dragged into a Gentile home, but first he has to see a vision of food. Unclean food comes down, God says, "Eat." Peter's more he's more he's more religious than God. No, God. No, 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 God. I ain't going to do that." No. And God says, "Don't you say is unclean what I say is clean?" Okay? And so then after Peter has that vision, then somebody says, uh, knocks on the door. Hey, Peter, we want you to come into a Gentile house and tell us the word of God. And Peter says, oh, I get it. It's kind of an interesting parallel here that Matthew is doing because we have this conversation about food. And now notice what happens next. Look at verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. He walked right past her, didn't acknowledge her existence in that sense. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. She's kind of driving us nuts. Verse 24, but he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it not be to you as you, I'm sorry, let it be to you as you desire, and her daughter was healed from that very hour. So here we have a major transition focus here. But without understanding that we're in this this odd overlapping transition time uh, here a little bit, we will miss the importance and we'll actually be confused by this passage. Why does Jesus just why does he act the way he does? Well, look at verse 21. Jesus departed out from there. Why? Well, the Pharisees and scribes are very, very angry at him. He has just called them publicly hypocrites. These are powerful people who will eventually see to it that he's executed. And so Jesus, he's not the kind of person to sit around and, 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 and fight. He's focusing on teaching and then going to Jerusalem and then being the atoning sacrifice. And so he leaves. He goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. The region of Tyre and Sidon, he has left Israel now and he has gone into a total non Christian, uh, non Jewish pagan land, okay? And so it's just right that a woman who's identified as a Canaanite, she's a Canaanite. Now there is no Canaanite, there is no Canaan anymore, uh, but Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and he identifies her as the old Canaanite. Mark and Luke who are writing to Gentiles, they identify her as Cypher Phoenician uh, which is a more correct thing but Canaanite is sort of the way Jews saw the world. There's us and then there's the Canaanites and she's one of them. And so she comes out, she has a severely demon-possessed daughter and she wants that daughter's help so bad she even identifies Jesus as the son of David. Notice that. Oh, Lord, Son of David. She identifies him as the Son of David. But he answers her not a word. He he walks past her and, and doesn't acknowledge her. And then the disciples ask him to have dealings with her. And then Jesus says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I wasn't sent to do this ministry at this point. Now let me let us rush through kind of we're going to rush through here we're going to put things on the screen let us help to understand this with a little bit of an overview of the history of redemption and why Jesus did what he did and why his focus is what it is at this moment all right so jesus is the messiah he comes out of israel he comes out of israel Israel as a nation was set apart and saved for the fine one purpose, that, that one great purpose, which was that the Messiah would birth out of her, that the Messiah would come from her. That's why Jesus was able to say to a Samaritan woman in John 4, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Salvation has come out of the Jews. The Messiah is going to come out of the Jews. And when Messiah came out of the Jews, he begins to focus his ministry to the Jewish people. He, that becomes the focus of his ministry. Now, you're in Matthew 15. Mark yourself there and look at Matthew 10. Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. We've actually already seen this. When Jesus sends out his disciples to minister. And he says this. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying. Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter a city of Samaria. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So notice the first mission that he sends his disciples out. Is a mission to Israel. I I I, I don't want you to go anywhere else. You go straight to Israel. And now he's saying that too. I have come to minister to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the Bible tells us that Israel, the Jewish people reject Jesus for the most part as the Messiah. They reject him. Now we see that in this text with the scribes and Pharisees coming and causing a problem. They reject him. And John says it this way in John 1:11 to 12. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, those who believe in his name. Well, you, well here's a problem. Well, the Jew, God makes the, this nation and then brings Messiah and then they reject the Messiah. Why is that? What does that have to do? Well, actually, that was part of the ordained plan of God in one sense. Why? For two reasons. Number one, so that the Messiah would be executed with our sin. And the Bible teaches that. In Acts chapter 2, the very first sermon that Peter preaches to the Jewish people in Israel, he says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him now listen to this, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, there's God's sovereign work, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. The Jews reject the Messiah and execute the Messiah And that was God's ordained plan because he is a sacrifice lamb for the atonement of Jew and Gentile alike. And that was part of the ordained plan. And so when the gospel begins to go out, it does begin to go out with a focus to the Jewish people. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. And so when these disciples go out and they begin to preach, they begin to preach the gospel first and foremost to the Jews. And then they go to the Gentiles. And they ran in, if you read the book of Acts, they run into this consistent problem. In Acts chapter 13, verses 45, it says this and following. But Paul is preaching. But when the Jews saw the multitudes that were coming for Paul... Uh, to listen to him, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. You are the Jewish people. You brought Messiah. You are the salvation comes from the Jews. It It was important. It was necessary that we preach you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for the salvation of the ends of the earth. Now, he's actually quoting an Old Testament passage that's supposed to be about Israel, and here these Jewish apostles are saying, we're going to be, we're follow this calling, we're going to be a light to the Gentiles. Verse 48 says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. You see, Jesus expands this ministry. Look with me. Again, you're back in Matthew 15, perhaps by now. Look at the end of the book of Matthew, the very end of the book of Matthew. Now remember in Matthew 10 he said, you be careful, don't go to Samaria, don't go to the Gentiles, stay with the children the sheep, uh, uh, the, the house of Israel. Notice what he says is his very last parting words, his final command to his disciples. Verse 18, and Jesus said, came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now go, go to the Samaritans, go to to, to the farthest ends of the world, go to the Gentiles, and share the gospel with them, and tell them the good news. And so you see, this is what Jesus is actually modeling here, in a sense. This whole thing gets modeled in this little thing back in Matthew 15. This Canaanite woman comes to him, she has a severe problem. Jesus ignores her because the focus right now is for Israel during this transition period, and yet she says, I know, Lord, I know. The children should get the bread. You don't take the children's bread and give it to the little dogs. But there's so much abundance in you. So much bread in you. So much power in you. So much goodness in you. So much greatness in you. Just give me a crumb. Just give me a crumb. And notice how Jesus answers her. Now remember what we looked at last week when Jesus said to Peter, Oh, you of little faith. Look at verse 28. Jesus answered and said to her, O oh, woman, Great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. I can imagine Peter hearing those words said, wow, here I am a Jewish man who had little faith and here is a Canaanite woman who has great faith, great faith. And so you can see how this gospel experience is beginning to expand to the new covenant. And it does, it expands to the new covenant experience. The new covenant where there is no Jew nor Greek where there is no slave nor free, where there is no, there is no ethnic differences, there's no economic, social differences. They are one people of God, one new man, the Bible teaches. And this transition then transits. So we're in this, a period of transition here. So how do we apply this to ourselves? What is here for us today? What is here for us today? Well, I'd like to apply this in a couple ways. And the first one is this. I want you to notice the rich Old Testament, Old Covenant blessings that Israel had. What rich privilege they had. Jesus comes to them. Jesus ministering. He won't even talk to this Canaanite woman because he is honoring that that rich blessing and and heritage that they had. Paul, when he wrestles with this issue in Romans chapter 3, at one point in Romans 3, in Romans 3 says this, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision much in every way? chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God they had the word of God the world was left in darkness they had the word of God that was a chief blessing of being Jewish God revealed himself in his word and they had the old testament but then he goes on and says not only that there's more in chapter 9 of Romans where he does pick up in earnest In 9, 10, and 11, the issue of the Jewish rejection and the Jewish people, he goes on and he says this in 9, 4, and 5, Who are the Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came? Who is over all the eternally blessed God? Amen. Look at all those privileges you have, he said. Look at all those privileges Israel has. And so, certainly, we should, as new covenant believers, we're in the new covenant now, dear friends. All of the shadows and all of the types and all of the things that was poured into Israel has now been expanded to us in the world. And we are new covenant believers now. We have great privilege. We are, it is, we're told in the Bible that we are fellow heirs with Israel. We are their fellow heirs. We are fellow citizens. We'll see that when we study the book of Ephesians. We are the true seed of Abraham. Who's the true seed of Abraham? It's Jew and Gentile, slave and free, all ethnic, all, all, all nations who believe and have the faith that Abraham had in the Messiah. We are the true seed of Abraham. We are the children of God. We're no longer the little dogs. I know that most of us here are Gentiles. The vast majority, if not all of us in this room right now, are Gentiles. We're no longer little dogs. We're the children of God. We're the sons and daughters of the living God. We have been incorporated in. We are part of one new man. We are fellow heirs and fellow citizens. We are redeemed. We are justified. We have been set apart. We have been chosen and called and justified and we are glorified. We are sitting right now at the right end of the throne. We're going to look at this tonight in a Bible study. We have these privileges. And dear ones, we need to so appreciate that. We need to appreciate that. And we need to take advantage of that. And we need to stop squandering that. Don't squander that. We look at what's happening here in the book of Matthew, and we're like, it's tragic what's happening. These arrogant Pharisees come walking in and start judging their Messiah, the very Son of God. And they're throwing away all of their privileges. Dear ones, we should take a lesson here. We should be humbled. We should look at this and say, oh, I am a new covenant member. I have a, it is greater than the old covenant. Remember Jesus said, there's no greater man than John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom is greater than him. The least in the New Covenant is greater than John the Baptist. I'm in the New Covenant. I have all of these New Covenant blessings. Dear friends, live that out. How do we live that out? Live that out by faith. By faith. Stop whining and complaining. That's why I say to myself, Todd, stop whining and complaining like you're from this world. This world isn't your home. You're a citizen of heaven. You're a child of the living God. Exercise faith. Realize how blessed you are. Dear friends, I have been in prayer just giving thanks and thanking God and and, and trying to get my mind off things that are worrying me or things that are bothering me or things that I I would want to complain about and just, just thanking, just praising, just thanking, just praising. And you know what? After a short period of time of that, you know what happens? I'm broken. we just sang it. I'm broken inside. And I look to God and I say, Please forgive me for complaining and grumbling, number one. And number two, I'm humbled, God. I feel like I'm the most blessed man that ever walked on the face of the earth because of all that you have given me in Christ Jesus. Dear ones, that's our heritage. That's who we are. We're to be sanctified, set apart people, unstained by the world. Get this awful world away from me. Get its adultery, get its idolatry, get its... Fornication, get its foul mouth, get its lies, get it away from me. I don't want to be a part of this. I want, I want my identity and my focus and who I am to be on this kingdom and this incredible covenant and what I have in Christ Jesus. We're to be people of witness, telling others the good news. And we're to be people of grace, extending grace, extending grace, extending grace. Jesus got no grace from the Pharisees. A Canaanite, Syrophoenician phoenician woman walked home to a demon-possessed daughter. Greatly demon-possessed. An ugly, foul perversion of what humanity should be because the demons had infested her. And that dear Canaanite woman, a Gentile, walked home and there was her lovely daughter finally at peace and joy. And said, Hi, Mom, and restored. Why? The grace of Jesus. To ones the Pharisees wouldn't even touch. If they were around that woman, they would wash their hands. And dear friends, I want to make a very specific application in closing this. And this is going to come from my heart, and I'm going to get passionate and 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 bear with me. But this means a lot to me. You try to talk to this generation about legalism, and they really don't even know what you're talking about because, quite frankly, that's not the problem in our generation. It's not legalism. It's lawlessness. It's lawlessness. It's sin. It's being sucked into this world and Christians acting like the world. That's where I, I, you know, that's where the focus needs to be. But in my past, there were two types of legalism that I had to deal with, and it was horrible. One was the legalism that came with what was called fundamentalism. And fundamentalism was a reaction, a religious reaction, against um, against the liberalism that dis- was destroying and, and ultimately now has destroyed the mainline churches. And fundamentalism became preoccupied with dress, being preoccupied with clothing, preoccupied with hairdos, preoccupied with all kinds of things. And I actually went to a fundamentalist Bible college. For one year as a freshman and I, I couldn't take it. I said, I, this isn't this isn't living out the gospel correctly. That was fundamentalism, okay? Fundamentalism's still there. they're still out there and, uh, and, and that's still happening, but it's very very it's very diminished from what it used to be. But I want to warn us here because that's not our problem. but our problem could be this and I just want and I especially want to warn the younger generation. I'm about, I'm, I'm on my way to glory, okay? I know that. Each day, my body's telling me, you ain't here that much longer. I know that. I know that, okay? But I want to really give a word of warning to, and I'm not that I think this is happening here. I just want to not let it ever happen here. I want to warn you because there is, we are reformed Christians. We are Christians who are following reformed theology, reformed reformation. I'm going to explain what that is. And we have to be very, very careful. And I'm going to tell you how careful we have to be. I left a body of churches that I was associated with for 20 years. I left them and came here because of what I'm about to talk about right now. Okay, And that's this. There has been a wonderful resurgence. And I've, it, it happened in my lifetime. And I, thankfully, by the grace of God, was caught up in it very early. It's a wonderful resurgence and recovery of the gospel through reformed theology. It's true that I just was listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones this morning and, and it just reminded me of my past and how his books brought me out of the, the, the shallow superficial evangelicalism that I was a part of. We all were a part of. It be, was a recapturing of the majesty and glory and greatness and holiness and grace of God. That's what it was, it was that. And the names that, that many of you don't know because you're too young now, but of Lloyd Jones and, 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 and folks like that, John Murray and others, that, that, that their books were being written. We were reading them and we were seeing God in all of his majesty and glory. It, it caused a major crisis in my life, a major crisis in my life. And it was a crisis for good. And when you see God in all of his majesty and glory, and then you start to see your own sinfulness and falling short, and then you realize, and then comes a recapturing of grace, of unmerited love for a wretched sinner. Of being made alive and free in Christ Jesus. And the Savior becomes so precious. And and this grace, this grace called me out of death into life and called me out of darkness into light. And God called me to himself. And you start to realize this is a gospel of grace. This is a gospel. And you're restored to that. And then what happens next? Then what happens next is that you say, This holy God that I'm seeing, that I never heard preach from the pulpits, I never saw the majesty of this before. Now I see it. I want to be holy, like this holy God. And what you do is you look back at your life and you realize, my, oh, my. And you start bringing biblical reformation to every area of your life. Your marriage, how you raise your children, how you think, how you talk, your use of media. You start to get your life together and you start to form biblical family life. And you go to the church and you start to, oh, we need elders. That's what the Bible says. Oh, deacons, that's what the Bible says. And you start reforming the church. And, you put the ref- and this is what my life has been doing for the last 40 years, okay? And then you do all of that. All of that is going on, and at the same time, there's a moral decline and decay of culture. It just continues on. And from my life, from my birth in 1956 to now, there has been a steady decay of moral culture, of this culture around us. It continues to this day, and it's only gotten worse. And what does then a holy, reformed, uh, biblically sound person do? They react against that. And they react very strongly against that. Especially if you weren't brought up in a Christian home, like Jan and I. And then you say, No, get out, you get out of my life, get away from my kids, no. And you and you and you start you start pulling away. Especially if you have children. You start guarding them. Watching out. We got rid of it. I just put a sledgehammer through my TV. We got rid of TV. We, got, they, we were very careful about the music, very careful about the friends that they were. very careful about the books that they read, very careful about how they were raised, very careful about how they were schooled. And so now all of a sudden you have this resurgence of holiness, this resurgence of healthy family life, this resurgence of people taking very careful how they do their church and how they do their families. And the devil sits back there and says, now what do I do about this? This is not good. How can I mess this up? And dear friends, I watched him do it. I watched him do it. Here's how he does it. Let's take a subtle shift away from grace to works. Let's get these people back now starting to think that this is all about works and all about doing this and reforming the church and reforming the family and keeping away this and schooling this way and all this. And let's get these people to lose focus on the gospel and to focus on these things and let's get them and now let's mix in some pride Because, you know, their children are the most disciplined children. Their children are the best educated children. Their children are the most kept from the world. Their children are the most this and most that. And now, get them judgmental of other parents and their children. They let their children read that. They let their children watch that. They let their children do that. Ooh, children, get away. Get away. Here, dip your fingers in this bowl before we eat. And the devil began to divide churches. And the devil began to divide friends. And the devil began to cause people to fight. And churches took on identity. We're the homeschooling church. We're the church that doesn't watch TV. We're the church that does this. And people, unbelievers, who are coming in to try to figure out what this gospel thing is all about, would come in and say, Pastor, I don't feel like we even fit here because we don't homeschool our kids. Or we let our kids watch TV. And we don't have, families won't even invite us over. And that's when I realized we became Pharisees. And then, dear friends, listen, because this is the worst part of this story. And, and to be honest with you, I moved here to Crossroads to protect my children from that. And I'll tell you another thing. This church healed my family. And that's why I don't ever want us to go back there. Healed my children. I don't ever want us to go back there. But here's what happened, and I've seen it happen in those churches that I left. The kids who grew up in that environment, who saw a lack of joy, a lack of grace, a lack of love, a tightness, a criticalness, a judgmentalness, those kids grew up and said, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And those parents... Who came out of the 60s and Woodstock, got their lives together, started hyper-reacting against this thing, lost touch with grace, lost their kids. Take a warning, dear ones. Let us take a warning here. And I want to really encourage young families, be serious about holiness. Be serious about how you raise your kids. But also be serious about grace. Grace. And don't lose the gospel. And understand the doctrine of Christian liberty. It is not our job to judge other people's servants. It is our job to stand before God. It's not my job to judge everybody else. And extend grace to people. And open your heart. And, open your, and your kids are more resilient. And pull your kids away if you have to. And tell them some things. But then go out and make kids who have an evangelistic heart for people who are different than them. So they'll go out and share the gospel with others. And Jan and I got very, 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 very committed to this. We did not want our kids growing up, these little isolated Pharisees who thought they were better and more holy than everybody else and who couldn't reach out to the world and love them. And dear ones, I want to urge us to do this. The Bible says this. The greatest of these is love. Don't wake up in the morning and look in the mirror that a Pharisee is looking back at you. Be a child of grace, of grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask and pray that you would help us as we watch the Lord Jesus navigate such a difficult, complex world that he had. Father, help us, we pray, as we navigate our complex world. Help us, we that we could be a people who love you and love your majesty and holiness and and are just enamored, even tremble at your greatness. Help us not to be superficial, silly, as so much of evangelicalism is today. But, Father, help us not to turn to become Pharisees. Help us to be people like Jesus with open hearts. Open hearts. Give us grace, we pray. Bless us. Help this church always to be a healing place where no matter what stage people are at, no matter how weirded out their their life is or even their family is, that they won't be made to feel secondary because families are further along than them. They will be made to feel loved, accepted. They will be met with patience and kindness and grace and mercy as you were to us when we, as a mess, met you. Give us that grace, we pray. I thank you that this church is this, this day. I know this church is. I know these dear families are. I pray that we will continue to be a place where all are loved by your great law. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' precious name.